Thank you, Claire. I think, can you hear me? Is it on yet? I think I turned it on. Yeah? Great. Uh, good morning, everyone. How are we all doing? Rachel? Good? Yeah? Great. Um, yeah, if you don't know me, my name is Travis. Put that down there. Um, and we, um, I'm one of the leaders here at Village. Uh, I'm really glad to be with everyone here this morning, um, worshiping together. I just, I don't know, I, I really treasure Sundays. I think I've treasured it more um, after the pandemic, just being able to gather together with like friends and brothers and sisters in Christ who all know Jesus in the same way and be able to treasure that and experience that together is really special. And so I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Um, we are currently in the middle of a series called To Seek and to Save the Lost. We're looking at the, the Gospel of Luke um, and Luke's account of Jesus's life. And so we, uh, during this time, have been kind of going through, we're about three weeks in so far, um, and we have been kind of looking at these snapshots and these stories about Jesus's life. And and kind of the main takeaway um, and kind of the reason why we're going through this series is we're, we want to look at Jesus, who he was, what he taught, what he did, and how that impacts and, and, and what that means for our own lives. But we also want to look at it from the perspective um, of the same way that kind of Luke was writing to Theophilus. We kind of went over this in week one about having a certainty about th- this is who Jesus really re- was and who, what Jesus really said. And, and we can know these things with a level of certainty but not only intellectually, kind of in a way of knowing Jesus relationally and personally. And so we have here this passage from Luke chapter 2 where we look at Jesus as a child. And it's unique because it's the only real picture that we get of Jesus' childhood. We have like his birth when he's a baby, and then we have like his adult ministry. And in all of Scripture, this is the only picture we have of his childhood. And so it's this really kind of special thing. And in a way, I'm glad it's there. In a way, it makes me wonder more like, wonder what else about Jesus as a kid there is to know, right? Um, but it's really interesting. As I was preparing for this talk and thinking about it, I was thinking about how we just, we get snapshots of the type of people people become from their childhood. Um, and like, I was talking about this with my brother this week, and we were kind of going back and forth for stories. I'm like, can you give me a story about me? Because I couldn't think of one. Um, and we didn't, um, so unfortunately, you don't get a good like insight into, into me as a child, but we were talking actually about one of the ones from, from him as a kid, and when he, maybe eight or nine years old, um, the way kind of things kind of worked in our house is we got an allowance for doing our weekly chores and whatever, and so there was something that he wanted, and he was asking my parents for more money and like special, like, is there anything I can do to kind of earn a little extra money to do this, and so my mom had given him a job to go weed the flower beds for like five dollars or something which is great, nice little negotiation, whatever had taken place. And so 20 minutes later, my mom's in the kitchen, she looks out the back window, and she sees my four-year-old sister in the flower bed weeding. And obviously, she becomes very suspiciously curious and sets off to find my brother. And we, we, I, don't really, I don't remember where she found him, but he, he wasn't in the fl- any of the, he wasn't outside in any of the flower beds. And so what had happened was, he hadn't made this deal with my mom, and then directly went to my four-year-old sister and subcontracted the job to her um, and had convinced her that, like, I don't know, he was offering her a pittance, which is like coins, like, a, like, I don't know, not even a dollar's worth, just like, here's a few, like, they're metal, it's shiny, it's like, it's, you know, whatever. And so, like, had basically manipulated her but convinced her to do this and obviously got in a world of trouble for it. And even as my mom was explaining to him, like, I'm going to give the money to her, and you're going to do it for free now. He was still trying to argue, like, look, 
me and you made an independent deal. And me and her made an independent deal. And these deals, sh- that, look, everyone agreed to this. I don't understand why I'm in trouble. Um, and it's this great picture because, thankfully, my brother knows Jesus because I can't imagine the type of person he would be if he didn't. Um, but, but, he, but it's this brilliant picture of who he's become. Like, he, he, he's, a, he's a businessman. Um, he, like, works for a bank. He does, like, you know, uh, loans and real estate and all these kind of things. And he's incredibly, he's honest, but he's incredibly shrewd. And he's never on the wrong end of any sort of deal. And it's just, and at eight, you could see that in him at eight years old, manipulating my little sister and breaking every child labor law that probably exists. And so, like, we get this same picture with Jesus right here. We get to see a picture of the person he's becoming in his childhood, and it's really pretty cool. Um, this account is at the end of what's called the infancy account or the infancy narrative in Luke, which is basically pre-adulthood, the account of Jesus. And so it's the last bit of it. And I, this account and probably most of the childhood account comes from Mary. Part of the reason why we think that is at the very end of the passage, um, Luke writes that uh, Mary treasured all these things up in her heart. He kind of is like commenting on how she felt about what she's just told him. So people kind of suppose this. I like to think, as I was reading this, I was like, I, I kind of want to, I kind of imagined Mary telling me this story as like, as like sitting at a table for coffee and she's kind of recalling like Jesus's childhood and how kind of special that was. And so we have this account and I'm gonna go ahead and kind of reread it and kind of make some comments on it um, as we kind of go through and, and set, set ourselves up for the morning. So if you turn with me, I'm actually gonna start in verse 40. Um, Luke says this, he says, the child grew, Jesus, the child Jesus grew and be, uh, became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. And in verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Um, Stopping right here, firstly, Luke is once again remarking on the faith of Mary and Joseph. They're devout, they're, they're like, I don't know, like good Jews, basically. They, They practice and follow the law. They do what God commands. And it's especially interesting, like they even go above and beyond. As I was reading about it, like it was custom and required by law that the man of the household go and make this journey to Passover to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And the fact that Mary is there and that she went every year just shows a level of kind of like above and beyondness that they were practicing in, in how they followed the law and how they obeyed God. And the other thing that is interesting about this is that, and Luke remarks that Jesus was 12 years old and, and made this journey with him. Which means this is probably the first time Jesus has actually participated in the Feast of the Passover in Jerusalem. When a, when a boy, you guys might be familiar with the idea of a bar mitzvah, but when a, when a boy turns 13, he kind of enters into adulthood. Bar mitzvah means son of the commandments. And it was basically this time when, when a child becomes a man, participates, participates in adult worship, but is also kind of accountable to the law at that point in, in his life. And so what would happen, as was custom, what as Luke says, boys at 12 would go and attend and observe and kind of get a feel of this is what this is going to look like when you do this next year. And so Jesus is here going with them to participate, or not to participate, but to observe and to learn. And then finally, it's the idea of Passover. If you're familiar when the do it quickly, but if you're not familiar with Passover, it's the feast that celebrates Israel's deliverance from Egypt. 
most notably in kind of focusing specifically on the, uh, like the plagues that God did, the plague of the killing of the firstborn son, right? That, that the angel of death was going to go throughout all of the land of Egypt and kill the firstborn son of, of each family. And, um, but he told his people Israel to, to kill a lamb, to put the blood on the doorpost, and, and the angel of death would pass over that household, um, that, there would, that you would be spared, you'd be delivered from this. Um, and so this is what they're celebrating. They're celebrating the deliverance and the salvation um, of God from way back when. So there's some context for you. I like context. Here we go. We're going to move on. Um, in verse 43, it says, When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among the relatives, among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So the feast has ended and Mary and Joseph have left. And they assume that Jesus has left with them. One of the things that's kind of implied by this is that Jesus, as a child, has always been pretty obedient and responsible. Like they just assumed he would come with them because it was now the time to go. And, they, and Jesus always did as he should have done. But after a day's journey, they find he's not here. And I'm a parent, and I know when I lose my kids for like 10 seconds, it's a terrifying experience especially if I'm like near a road or water or anything like that. It's terrifying. And so Mary and Joseph felt this way for three days because they didn't know where their son was. I know I just can kind of relate to them in that. That significant distress they felt the entire time is until they finally found Jesus again and they found him in the temple. And what was Jesus doing there? He was learning from the teachers. He's asking questions. He's answering questions. And he's astounding everyone by the way he's dialoguing about these things. And more likely than not, what he's dialoguing about is Passover, or related to Passover, given that it's kind of the feast of the Passover. Mary approaches him, pulls him aside, and she tells Jesus, or asks him, why have you done this to us? You've caused us great distress. And Jesus' response is, why were you looking for me? Like, some some commentaries have called it a rebuke. I kind of see it as like a genuine question of like, I don't understand why you didn't know where I would be. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It's an uncommon response to be sure, but Jesus' response here is precisely why Luke has included this story in his account. Because this is the first time we see in scripture that Jesus claims to be God. Until now, it's only been others saying these miraculous things about him. It's, the angel Gabriel approaching Mary. It's the angels telling the shepherds who then tell Mary and Joseph. It's Simeon, as we learned last week, kind of making these declarations about who Jesus is at Jesus's, um, yeah, when at the, at the temple when Jesus was, I think it was 40 days old. Um, but now Jesus is saying these things about himself. Mary says to Jesus um, that she 
his mother and Joseph, his father, have been in great distress. And Jesus' response was like, well, why not? Of course I would be here. We know that Jesus is telling Mary that he, like who he is and that he is God because of the way in which he words it. Firstly, Jews at the time would, would, would refer to God as Father, but they would say our Father and usually include in heaven, which might sound familiar because Jesus teaches everyone to pray by saying our Father in heaven, I'll be your name. Hopefully you know the rest. But what Jesus says here is my Father's house. I have the translation say that Jesus says I must be about my Father's business. He's not metaphorically talking about his relationship with God the Father. He's talking about it in literal language. And to further emphasize the point, he says it in response to Mary saying, your father and I have been in great distress. And Jesus says, yeah, but I'm in my father. I mean, he's almost saying, yeah, but he's not my real dad. Which is, as a parent, again, kind of a weird thing to emotionally engage with as you're studying scripture. But that's what Jesus is confessing and saying. How do Mary and Joseph respond to this? We read it in verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them Nazareth, and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus says this, and Mary and Joseph don't get it. They're confused by it. This, isn't, this won't be the last time when Jesus says that he's God and people don't understand. But even in kind of the confusion, I mean, it's, it's a weird engagement because we look at it and there's really almost like no resolution. She asks a question, he asks a question, and that's all we get. And then Jesus goes home with them. But what we see in the aftermath is that they might not have understood, but Mary still treasured these things up in her heart. <laughs> it's okay. Um, and what we see from Jesus is that even though he understands and is saying, look, I'm, I'm the son of God, like I am divine, and he understands this about himself, he still obeys them, and he's still submissive and obedient to them as his parents. And that kind of shows us the big takeaway that I have for us this morning. It's one big idea. I know I'm promising a one-point sermon. It'll still probably be a normal length. So there you go. But the one idea I want us to kind of think about this morning is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And we see that here in this passage. The idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man is a doctrine or a teaching belief of the Christian faith called hypostatic union. Don't worry, I'm not going to go professor mode on us. I'm just giving us a little bit of information. Um, but hypostatic union basically states that somehow, miraculously and supernaturally, Jesus is both God, fully and completely, and man, fully and complete and distinct natures. He's not 50% God, 50% man, nor is he a being who can come out, somehow like switch modes between being God and then being man. It's not that he was God, who simply appeared to be human and in human form, but wasn't actually. And it's not that he was human, who just was really special, and therefore he's fully God and fully man. And what I want to look at this morning is how does that idea, how do we see that idea in this story, that reality of who Jesus is, and a way to get to know Jesus because of that, and how does that apply to us, our lives, and our relationship to him? Well, the first way we see it is that Jesus learned. Luke says in this account that Jesus was sitting among the teachers. He was listening to them. He was asking them questions, and he was giving answers. 
on both ends in verse 40 and at the end in verse 52, Luke says that Jesus was increasing in wisdom. He was learning things, acquiring more knowledge and understanding. But how can that be? If Jesus is God, isn't God all-knowing or omniscient? How can you be all-knowing and still have to learn? We see here and other times in Jesus' life and ministry that there seems to be a limit on his knowledge. For instance, there's the story of the woman with a discharge of blood who touches his cloak in hope of healing, and Jesus says, who touched me? Now, some people say that he did know and don't know and whatever, but it's, in the, it's another instance where Jesus seems to have a limit on this knowledge. The one that is very true is the account where Jesus is having a dialogue with people about judgment, and he says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man. Like, even, even I don't know when all this will happen. But then there are other times in Jesus' life and ministry where he displays like an all omniscient, all-knowing characteristic about himself. In the account of the woman at the well, he knows her entire relationship history, that she's been married five times, that she's currently living with someone she's not. She tells other people, come meet a man who told me everything I'd ever done. He knows the Last Supper that Judas has betrayed him and tells Judas to go do what he needs to do <laughs> and dismisses him from the dinner, from the, from the Last Supper. Even when he's calling his disciples, he tells Nathaniel that before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, he displays this idea of being able, of like knowing everything. So which is it? How can it be both? Well, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we read that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. The answer is that it's both. In some supernatural and mysterious way, Jesus is fully both omniscient, and limited in his knowledge, having to learn. He had to ask questions. He had to listen. Who, what, when, where, why? These words are part of Jesus' vocabulary during this time of his life. But in his divinity, he also was an ancient. To, to be helpful, there's a couple commentators that I'm just going to quote here now that put it maybe a little more clearly than I've just done. Theologian Wayne Grudem says it this way, Jesus learned things and had limited knowledge with respect to his human nature, but was always omniscient with respect to his divine nature. And therefore, he was able any time to call to mind whatever information would be for his ministry. John Piper explains it like this. He, Jesus, had the personality of God, basically the motives and will of God, but the powers of knowing all and the infinite strength of God, he somehow restrained. They were his potentially, and thus he was God. But he surrendered them their use absolutely, and so he was man. And I don't know how you feel right now sitting in this seat, but I know that I am very confused all week long trying to wrap my head around this idea. And I did a lot of Googling and did a lot of reading and listened to a lot of podcasts and did a lot of praying. And even now, as I have to be up here because time wouldn't get, I didn't have more time to try to get my head around it, I still am like, okay, I think I get it, but I'm also still not sure, and it's still sort of confounding and mysterious. And to be honest, it's a little frustrating, as I feel like I should be able to know. And 
as I dealt with that frustration this week, I realized something very important. I desire to be omniscient. And I'm very not okay with not being all-knowing. And I think that's true. You see, we live in the information age. We live in a world where we can Google anything, and there's a promise of omniscience as long as you know how to type it into a search bar. And what this idea and this desire and this false promise of omniscience and all-knowingness has kind of created in us is a desire to be godlike and a discontent with it. This happened, just as an example, we, Friday night we were watching a movie. Uh, we had Jess over, and it's movie night with our kids, and we were watching Surf's Up, which is one of Jess's favorite movies. It's a story about a surfing penguin. I don't know. It's, it was okay. You can go watch it if you want. But one of the characters in there was so familiar. I mean, I just couldn't shake it. I was like, I know this voice. You ever been, done that, watched a movie, or heard a thing? You're like, I know this person, but I don't know where I know them from. And I spent 10 minutes of my time, which should have been spent, you know, enjoying my kids and watching a movie, just be like, oh, God, who's this? Who's this person? Where do I know this from? Do you, Lauren, do you know? Jess, God, you know, right? We're, it's familiar, right? And we just got stuck in this, like, black hole of not knowing. And eventually, I Googled it reading up on it and searched it out and was going through like the filmography of different actors and then, okay, there we go. That's where I know this person from. Did it matter? No. <laughs> Did it change my life? No. It wasn't rewarding or satisfying even to finally figure it out. But I was so uncomfortable and frustrated with not knowing that I couldn't just leave it alone. The false promise of omniscience has created a greed and a gluttony of information. We need to know it now, and we are not okay with not knowing. It's one of the ways in our own lives that we see our own pride as humans and our desire to be God. We bear the burden of trying to know everything. We need to stay up to date on everything that's going on in everyone's life. I mean, think about how you consume social media. What accounts do you follow? How often do you check? And why do you need to know? Where they took their dog on. I mean, like, who cares? But we have to know because we feel like we have to stay connected and be on top of it and 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 informed. The pro- this false promise of omniscience and the belief that we can be achieved or or attained has made it even more difficult to accept our own limitations and our own humanity. Particularly in regards to the future, I think about. I think about just the last two years and how hard it is to make plans at all about anything. Because what are the guidelines going to be? And can we make? Can we travel? My birthday's coming up, but is it going to be a rule of six then? Or are we not do a rule of six anymore? But it depends on where we go. Because maybe they'll have COVID passports and I have COVID passports. And blah, 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 blah. Like, there's just so much that we don't know. And it, it, it's, we're limited. We're human. And we struggle and wrestle with our humanity in that so much. Here's the big idea for this. I know I've kind of belabored the point of omniscience a little bit. But here's the idea. We are not God, but in our pride, we desire to be. However, Jesus, who is God, in humility and love, limited his knowledge so that he might be like us. And that idea has a lot of gravity to it. Think about why the God of the world would do that. Another way we see Jesus' humanity and humility is in how he relates to the scriptures. Jesus is eager to learn, to listen, to ask and answer questions about the scriptures. Jesus loves the scriptures. He learns them, he understands them. And ultimately, 
we know he fulfills them. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think come to I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is criticized often about, like, do you not follow the law? Why do you do this on the Sabbath? Do you not, do you not respect the law? Like, all these kind of things. Like, he's constantly criticized about his engagement with the law in his adult ministry. And he's like, no, 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 I don't. I, 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 I love it. I, I keep it, and I fulfill it. The question I have for us in comparison is how do we feel about the Word of God? How do I feel about the Word of God? Maybe specifically the law. How do I feel about the parts of Scripture that when I come to them, I see my sin? Because I'm very fond of the Word of God when it's encouraging or when it's about God's love for me or, you know, when it's got things that I agree with in it. But the parts about God's judgment and his wrath towards sin and the parts where it just blatantly highlights, like, this is, this, these things are sinful and you, human, do them. Those parts I'm not okay with. <laughs> Those parts I breeze over. Those parts I'm like, oh, that's a great reminder to take away and just kind of don't let it hit me at a heart level, right? Specifically, to use words like delight and love for that, how, how, do, you, how do you love something that shows you your sin? In Romans 8 that James actually read for us in our call to worship, Paul says this, and this is, I think, is the key for how we can love the word of God and the law of God. Paul says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I'm going to read this last bit one more time. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, by sending Jesus in humanity, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the uh, flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because God himself took on our humanity, the righteous requirement of the law. And so we no longer stand condemned before God. When we stand in the presence of God, it's, we're not in wrath. There is no judgment. We aren't condemned by God. Instead, because of Christ, we stand in the presence of God as his sons and daughters, as co-heirs with Christ. And it's specifically impactful because you know, I can delight that much more and how great the love and salvation and forgiveness that I've received in Christ. That's how we can love the law. Finally, we see Jesus' humanity in this, that though Jesus, being God, is eternal, he is living the human experience. We've seen it already, I mean, just two chapters into Luke so far. Jesus is born. Jesus is circumcised. Jesus has a mother and a father. Jesus has a cousin. Jesus learned and had to learn. Jesus has teachers. Jesus asks questions. He grew up, he got smarter. On both ends of the account, Luke highlights that Jesus is living the human experience. In verse 40, he says, and the child grew, like grew up, as all children do, and became strong, filled with wisdom. In verse 52, he says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. He grew up and he learned, and in favor with God and man. Luke is highlighting 
that Jesus is living the human experience. And I don't think this is a small thing to consider. Because also in Luke's account, we've read all these miraculous things about Jesus. Angels, prophecies, not least of which is the virgin birth, right? Pretty miraculous things about this person. And we're going to read more miraculous things about Jesus throughout the rest of the book of Luke. And I think sometimes you can be tempted to look at Jesus and be like, well, he kind of like bypassed the human experience a little bit. You know, like, well, of course he didn't do blank. He was God. Have you ever said that or heard someone say that, right? Well, of course Jesus doesn't do that. Of course he doesn't respond this way. He's God. And there's an element of truth to that. But the Bible talks about how Jesus also understands, like Jesus understands the desire to sin. He just didn't do it. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we read that we don't have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Pretty crazy to think about. We don't serve a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And then it goes on to say, let us then, so because of this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. This is why this idea is so important. Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, God himself gets it. He doesn't just know what you're going through through experientially. There's great comfort in knowing that we serve a God who understands our weakness. And because he does, he is all the more ready to give us the mercy and the grace we so desperately need. Jesus' humanity and Jesus' divinity matter to us in this way. I'll kind of reiterate the point here. Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's brilliant, it's marvelous, it's mysterious, it's true. We are only human. And so we need a Savior. Jesus being fully God and fully man matters because it is such an astounding act of God's love for us. Every other religion in the world, every faith you could possibly learn about or follow, teaches a faith of work and effort and self-discipline to achieve holiness or enlightenment or a right standing with God or whatever. It is a roadmap for how we can get to God. In Christ, we find Christianity is God comes down to us, reaches down to us, puts in the effort to reconcile with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, loving us and showing us the love the Father has for us. Jesus comes to us to show the love of God and Christ's humility in his humanity. I was thinking about this this morning, actually. I like, kind of walked to church early to reread through it and get the jitters out, so to speak. And um, I was praying as I was walking, and as I was praying, like I was thinking about this idea about God coming down to earth. And when you think about all of Scripture, including the law and the Old Testament, it, it, it's, it's, God, it's God calling his people out of sin into holiness, right? And obviously, as we read scripture, we understand that like we can't ever get that. We can't ever do it. We can't achieve it. But I was thinking about like my own kids, right? Like Connor and Callum, and like how 
how when they're like needing discipline and repentance and to change their ways, there's two ways that I engage with them. There's the first way is where is where like I'm standing, like they're here, they're doing whatever, I don't know, just pitching a fit. And and like I'm stern, like I raise my voice, I'm direct, I'm commanding, don't do this, stop this, go here, time out, naughty step, you know, whatever. Fingers are usually pointed, volume is usually higher. And positionally, I'm here and they're down there. But then the second way I engage with them is I'll sit them down and I'll talk to them and they can still be just as crazy and upset as, you know, whatever, you know. And they're down here and up here over them. I get down here and I'm getting eye level with them and I start talking to them and, hey, Connor, like, let's talk about what happened. Why are you upset? Why are you doing what you're doing? Help me understand. We talk through it. And this isn't to coddle them. It's not to be like, what you did is okay, and I'm going to be nice to you, and we're just going to try to get past it. It's still a means to correct them and to bring them back to doing what they should be doing and living how they should. Position is different. There's a graciousness and a gentleness in the position. And God does that same thing with us. In Christ, God gets down on our level and sympathizes with our weaknesses and gives us the opportunity to be like, this is why this is hard, and this is why I did it, whatever else. And he doesn't say, like, well, it's okay that you're sinful. I'll just, like, forget about it. We still need to repent. We still need a Savior. We still need to change. But there's grace and graciousness in the position of that. There's an interesting thing, too, about it, as I was thinking about this morning, is that that change in position opens me up to being hurt. <laughs> right? Like, if I'm up here and Connor's down there, he can throw and kick and, like, you know, do his tantrum. But, I, like, he's not going to hurt me. But if I'm, like, on his level, in the times that I've gotten on his level, I've been bitten, I've been punched, and I've been kicked. Right? Now, consider how we treated Jesus when he came to earth. Right? How often was he argued with... Um, Oftentimes, in the engagements we're going to read through Luke, the different teachers are trying to catch him, to discredit him. Ultimately, obviously, he's betrayed and beaten and mocked and abandoned and killed. That's how we treated God when he came down on our level. I kind of bypassed it a little bit. I'll go back to it. Is the idea that all this happened at Passover, which is a time where we celebrate God's deliverance, right? 21 years later, there's another Passover that happens. Jesus is in Jerusalem again, celebrating. And this is the Passover that he has a meal with his 12 disciples and talks to them about how he is the fulfillment of all of this. He talks to them about how his body is about to be broken, how his blood is about to be shed, and that because of that, we can be reconciled to God. The idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man is mysterious and astounding. I, I, I still think about it, and I'm like, I, I desire to know more, to understand more, and that desire is equal parts, me wanting to be God-like and, and a, an actual like 
I think, genuine and good desire to know my Savior and King in a very real way. Um, but at the same time, like I read that Mary treasured these things in her heart, and I think the mystery, and even though we have limitations in the way we understand this, the nature of Jesus in this way, I think it can cause us to worship, to treasure him. It has implications in our lives. It also, in terms of the gospel and our salvation, it's what sets our faith apart from every other faith in the world. It's God reconciling us to himself. To take away, there's one thing to remember, like, though Jesus is both God and man, we're only human and we need a savior. And Jesus is that savior for us. We are going to do communion as we always do. And we're going to remember this last supper, this other Passover that Jesus did, where he was in Jerusalem. The same teachers, <laughs> I was thinking about this this week, the same teachers that are astounded by him 21 years later kill him for saying the exact same thing. But we share in this meal to remember our Savior, to remember what he did for us on the cross. So as we come up and take the communion, we have bread, we have wine. We have these elements that remind us that Jesus, in his humanity, his body and his blood, all of that was broken and it was shed for us that we might know him. I pray that as we share communion together, my encouragement is that we, to you, is that, is that we take this time to, to meditate on the gravity of all that and what that means for us about Jesus' love for us, that how we can know God's love for us in Jesus' humility and in his humanity. If you're a Christian, we're going to come and take the elements as we do often. Wish one person from above will come up and take it from, for, your, for your group. Remind yourself of the work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. If you're not a believer, I, I invite you to consider instead who Jesus was, what he did, what he said, and what that means for you. And encourage you to receive him instead. I'm going to pray for us real quick. God, um, you're, you're a wonderful God, um, gracious, loving, gentle, and kind. Thank you um, that Jesus came to us, God, that you came down to us, level that we might know you. The word says that anyone who has seen Christ has seen the Father. God, thank you for making him known. God, as we take communion now, I pray that we would remember our salvation and the amazing work that Christ did for us through his life and his teaching and his death and his burial and his resurrection. God, that we might be reconciled to you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your forgiveness. God, may we never forget it, or devalue it, or neglect it. May we treasure it in our heart the way Mary treasured these memories of hers. Thank you for your love for us, and in your name we pray, amen.